0: what's up storytellers thank you so much to all of you who left a rating and a review for 88 cups of tea i know it's a whole process to get through all the steps on itunes and it means the world to us that you took the time and thank you so much to our listener with the username seattle sleepless nights for this incredibly thoughtful review seattle sleepless nights gave us five stars and wrote sheer perfection and inspiration It's so easy to feel drained, lackluster, and unworthy when you set your sights on writing a story. But 88 Cups of Tea is a cure-all for all of that self-doubt and will leave you feeling motivated and rejuvenated to keep working on your project. 88 Cups of Tea is my favorite podcast and the best way for me to start my weekend. I work a 9-to-5 job during the week, which leaves me the weekends to write and be creative. My new Saturday routine consists of waking up, Making a cup of coffee for my go-to thermos and then heading outside to walk around a lake as I listen to the storytellers on 88 Cups of Tea serve me a massive dose of inspiration. Nothing else gets me as motivated or focused to sit down and write for the rest of the day. Beyond the motivation that you will get from 88 Cups of Tea, my favorite part of this podcast is the heart and soul that goes into every episode. Host Yin Cheng is so talented at making wonderful connections with the creators that she interviews. Every episode feels like connecting with an old friend, catching up on the journey that got them to where they are today, and then making plans for the future together. Because that's the beauty of 88 Cups of Tea. It goes beyond a podcast and creates a community of storytellers who are shaping the world for the better. Listen to this podcast. You will love it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your day to leave such an incredible and thoughtful and really heartwarming review. I am so thankful to have listeners like you in our community. And also that walk around the lake sounds so nice and I'm so jealous in the best way possible. Thank you so much again. Now on to the next part of our intro, we have a private Facebook group. It's kind of a magical place for fellow listeners and storytellers to connect and hang out. We have weekly threads where we check in with each other about storyteller-related things, and I also chat very closely with our group members to involve them with our podcast and community-related decisions that help shape the growth and direction of 88 Cups of Tea, including, but not limited to, requesting who you would love to hear next on the show and live video catch-ups and book unboxings. If these are things that jump out at you, we would love to hang out with you in our group at 88 cupsofteacom slash FB group. It's so fun in there, and I'm really proud to share that our group is filled with the kindest and most caring members. Join us over at 88cupsoftea.com slash FB group. Now, onto our guests, you have no idea how excited I am to have the one and only Tomi Edayemi. Tomi is the author of Children of Blood and Bone, a West African-inspired fantasy debut, and the first novel in her trilogy that conjures a world of magic and danger, perfect for any of you fans of Lee Bardugo and to hear. It's been described as powerful and captivating, and Tomy has been hailed as one of the most promising voices in young adult fiction. Entertainment Weekly describes Children of Blood and Bone as a phenomenon, and it landed one of the biggest young adult debut novel publishing deals ever. Way before her novel was even released, her entire fantasy trilogy landed a deal to be made into movies produced by the team at Fox 2000 and Temple Hill Productions, the same team who produced the movies The Fault in Our Stars and Twilight. Children of Blood and Bone releases on March 6th, so be sure to grab yourselves a copy to see what everyone's talking about. In today's episode, we discuss all things Children of Blood and Bone, from the story behind the title to her research and writing process. Tomi even shares her resources that helped her world-building process in the novel. We discussed how Tomi's awareness of poor representation in her earlier stories inspired her to craft strong representation for her readers, why it's crucial to recognize our responsibility to give younger generations true representation that creates self-love and the power a story has to create empathy and humanity and to open our eyes to possibility. For those of you who are currently writing your own manuscripts, you'll really appreciate all of the helpful and detailed advice Tomi shares for our storyteller community. She walks us through how to craft character descriptions, all about first drafts, how to use rejections to further your story's success, advice on finding mentors and editors who can help you get your story to where you want it to be, and so much more. Tomi will be taking over our Instagram stories for the release of her episode, and it's going to be awesome. Be sure to catch her takeover on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. Our conversation was recorded back in early November and I've been so antsy holding off on her release. I have so much love for Tomi and she is equally as thoughtful and full of love and support as a friend as she is gifted and extraordinary with her writing. I am thrilled to finally share her episode with you so you can get a glimpse of who Tomi is as a person and as a storyteller. A heads up, as soon as Tomi and I hopped on our call, we just clicked and talked about everything so we'll be jumping right into the middle of our conversation. Now let's jump right in. Let's get into more about Tommy and how you first fell in love with storytelling or how you fell in love with writing. What were your first memories or if you remember the first Catalyst? Yeah,
1: I remember the Catalyst and it's funny because at the time it was so natural to me and it's only been the past 2 years that i've really reflected on the fact that oh writing has always been inside you but the catalyst was i was somewhere between 4 and 7 i had already watched all the disney movies and so instead of rewatching them i don't know how this happened but my mom brought home this bollywood film called kabikushi kabigam one day Ooh. and i was the most magical thing i had ever seen so i just started watching it every single day oh. i would do Dances and I would sing the songs in Hindi. And this was two or three years of watching this one film every day. And then on top of that, <laughs> at some point, I was reading books about this horse farm series. And I don't remember what it was. It was like a middle grade series. The setting was a horse farm, and there were like these three girls. And I desperately wanted a horse. So I was just reading this series. And those were the two ingredients cooking in the pot. But then the catalyst was when I saw the parent trap, for which. I didn't find out that Lindsay Lohan didn't have a twin until seven years after this movie. (laughs) Me (laughs) too. Yes. I I thought there were two Lindsay Lindsay Lohans. We don't have the technology to do that. I (laughs) know. And I'm like, oh my god, I love this. So I was watching the Bollywood movie every day. I was reading this horse farm book and then I saw The Parent Trap. The natural response in me was to go to the computer we had in our house and it was one of those big Microsoft monitors, (laughs) the big hard drive and everything. This was in floppy this time.
0: Was it the colorful ones where you could Choose a turquoise, orange yes. colored, yes. and it was amazing. That's amazing. So this is
1: like the time period because again, it's sometime between I was four or seven. So this is like early nineteen nineties. I just started writing. I didn't know fan fiction was a thing, but I basically wrote the Parent Trap fan fiction set on a horse farm where they were <laughs> wearing these Bollywood outfits. Which- named Marilyn and Carolyn, but by the end, they were just named Tomy and Tomy. And so it was like, Tomy gallops the black stallion into the storm to save it. And with her twin, it was just wish fulfillment. But... It happened. It's so good. I just wish you could publish that. I'm desperately looking for it because oh, my family. is hope you find moved. It. Hopefully, it's in one of these storage boxes. I just did it and it was like a 35 page story. It was single space. And I guess that's why when I'm reflecting on it now, I'm, oh my God, this has really always been in me because no one told me to do that. It was just a natural reaction. And I wrote it, I read it, and I was like, cool. Now I have a horse and a twin and I get to wear this cool outfit that. You wore part of the Act three Climax. Oh, I've gotten everything I wanted. So storytelling became this way to get everything I wanted. So I just kept doing it. I didn't know that fan fiction was a thing. I thought I made it up. (laughs) And so that was my first venture into it. That was my first level. I kept doing that. So from whatever I started between four and seven to even now, I always wrote fan fiction and I would do it to put myself in these stories and so I could go on these adventures. And mostly I kept my Harry Potter fan fiction in my head because it felt like a sin to put that on paper with other (laughs) things. like naruto i had like a 300 page naruto fan fiction where i just added one girl named charlie i had a lot of stuff but it was when i was a senior in high school and i was i did speech and debate for one of the events i had to write my own speech and i was like what's it going to be about i had realized that when i wrote that first story which was called the black champion because of the wild black stallion that i had to tame it was a masterpiece (laughs) I put myself in it. At some point, I kept putting myself in the story, but they stopped looking like me. So the first thing I ever did was pure, you know, is these two black girls riding horses. But then as I started getting older, as I started doing the same thing, but in middle school and high school, all the characters were white or the characters were biracial. And like, I didn't realize until senior year of high school, it was because I was writing what I wanted to be. And I was like, Oh, that's pretty messed up. I'm upset that I don't get to see myself in stories. Yet here I am creating stories. And I'm so messed up that I am not even putting myself in the stories. You know, I'm saying, I wish I was white. I wish I had light skin because these are the things that society are telling me is good. And society is telling me that me and the way I am is bad. Therefore, in this fantasy world, I've really disturbingly ingrained that and I realized that senior year and so senior year was the first time where I was okay no you're writing black girls you are writing because you need to learn to love yourself you need to make sure no black girls do what you've been subconsciously doing for a decade it was really disturbing where I was like fuck oh I shouldn't swear
0: (laughs) did you hear me in the beginning going on about your book I mean hello I was like teaching people the f-word okay Okay, cool. All right, this is so this could be all authentic. <laughs> I'm surprised how self aware you were. It just hit you senior year, but was there like a catalyst or someone, like whether it was your mom yeah. or a friend who read your stories and they're like, wait, tell me.
1: No, I didn't show anyone anything I wrote till I was 20.
0: You came to your own awareness of what you were reflecting on paper. Still, that's around a time where, yeah, we didn't see many characters that reflected did. Yeah, us, no, that but... was
1: before maybe Princess Tiana, but like oh. Olivia Pope hadn't caught me. And yeah, that's yeah. the thing, I remember these moments. The catalyst for me thinking was I was looking for an essay topic and the essay had to be about me. So I was looking and my like speech coach was, hey, look at the things you do and just go exploring. So. I was like, okay, what do I do that's not, that everybody doesn't do, you know, because a lot of people are like, I do speech in the I do student council, I do this, I volunteer, and I'm like, okay, no one wants to hear a speech, like, everybody could give that speech, so I was looking at the things that only I did, and I was like, okay, I don't know anybody else who writes all these stories. And I didn't even think of myself as a writer. I wasn't being honest with myself. It was just I've been doing it forever. So it seemed natural. But so I was like, okay, let me look at these stories. That's when I saw the pattern. My first story ever is a really funny story. So I was focusing on that. But then I saw the delineation. And I was just like, wow, the last time I wrote a story, really, truly me fully loving me and putting myself in there as I am not as I want myself to be was when I was, what, six? That's how I realized, because I was looking at that, but then seeing the difference and being like, I always was writing what I wanted, but when I was six, I wanted to be me. I just wanted external things. I wanted a horse. I wanted a twin. With these other things, I was still writing what I wanted, but I didn't want to look like me. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, oh God, that's bad.
0: Good for you for coming around on your own and realizing that. I just want to tie that into your book. What really stood out to me, because I noticed there's a lot of people who are ashamed of having curly hair. Yeah. And what I loved, love, love, loved in your book was that having straighter hair was meh, but having curly hair was where the power was. And that's yeah. where you find yourself again. That was almost like the true beauty. We need more of this, this like right here. Like magic.
1: And that's the thing. And it's so funny because there's all these things right now where because of the way society has been built to be so anti-black
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's on us the younger generations to be so pro-black you can start fighting against what 200 years of people being like hey everything about you is awful don't be here i saw this on an instagram post and i've been thinking about it a lot where there was a beauty vlogger and she was talking she's like i'm tired of having to explain to people that if i say i have black pride it doesn't mean I hate all other races. She's like, I love people. She goes, I think the reason people assume when I say I have black pride is that I hate other people is because a lot of time, if someone says they have white pride, it's coming from like a white supremacist background. Mm -hmm. It you you know like the opposite of Mm -hmm. that is usually everyone else is bad. Whereas for me, it's like, no, I love people. I just know because of what I went through and what is so deeply ingrained in me and what I'm still fighting against. For me, like I'm now my hair is locked. So even me, I had to go through a natural hair journey and I had to fight through being, oh, can I go to work with my Afro? And then let alone some girl comes to work with blue hair. She's not worried about losing her job. She's not worried about being unprofessional. And here I am freaking out in the mirror because of the way my hair grows. There's so many things and they are so deeply ingrained in a lot of minorities, but especially black women. I feel the need to really reclaim that because as many little girls as I can save from writing stories that don't have people that look like them, because they don't even realize they've been taught to hate themselves and have deeply internalized it. To me, that's my job because it's like, what else am I doing? I wish the world was in a place where I could just write a fantasy. It'll just be like, this is fun. oh, this is magical. And I love with this book that I was able to do things that were fun and magical. But it's like, I can't ignore the responsibility that I feel to have to give little girls things that Mm -hmm. will help them to love themselves. Because I know what not seeing someone, I didn't know it was a big deal not seeing anybody like me, but clearly it messed me up. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I know that this stuff matters. And I know it changes how it'll have an effect on how they view themselves and how they value themselves, which is going to In, like, have an effect on how they get into relationships and how much self respect they have. It's this crazy ripple effect that starts with seeing a mirror. I remember as a kid, I didn't think I could be a Disney princess because there was no black Disney princess. It's a very simple thought, but if you step away, I had internalized that I could not be a princess because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. You know, like, those are the things that are embedded and they spiral and then suddenly. You've been writing for ten years, and you write a princess, but hey, she can't be black. There cannot be black princesses. It doesn't matter what you are. That's the problem, and that's yes. kind of what we're battling against. And we're battling
0: against hundreds, if not thousands. I of know. Years. I know. And so it's a lot,
1: but that means we need to go aggressive.
0: But it needs. I don't think anyone's gonna hate you for bringing this up. I think everyone's gonna feel like they could actually breathe after you shared that, and thank you for that because. It's a really real situation that we're in right now. And I agree with you. Until we are all start off on equal ground playing field, we still got to keep being quote unquote aggressive. And if aggressive means by speaking out on what's right and what's moral, then so be it. Speaking up for yourself and being aware and responsible in your writings. And if you're able to, you should, and everybody should be responsible or at least be aware and not be so ignorant. I totally understand where you're coming from. Not Obviously not in your shoes, but I have similar stories that i share with you there's people that i came up with from new york city where everybody's hustling doing their thing but over time yeah. if you stick with it once you start building these credentials you realize i'm able to have a voice now i'm able to yep. say something why That's not it. say yeah. it? you're not going to fight for your own people or stand up for your own people who no will no one else will no one else will and that was the thing where some people not naming names but there's people like, oh, well, that girl's getting a little aggressive about voicing her opinions. I understand she sounds actually quite angry at times. But you know what? At this point, because she's built herself up and gotten to a place where she notices what she says people will listen. She has to because she's one of the only ones representing Asian-Americans.
1: And, really cool. and you yeah. have to.
0: We're known to be more quiet. So we have all these years to feel like we have to make up for the quietness and show no, we will speak up if we have to speak up. And when people are saying
1: dumb things, oh, I can't cast Asians because they're not expressive what i think there's so much parts of where it's, okay if i could do a nice powerpoint presentation to explain to you why this matters like i would but then i'm always like you know what? It's not even about them it's always about the kids and i was like yeah. if you can't understand why this is important for kids i don't need to waste time explaining mm-hmm. for you i just need to do it for the kids even the thing if we just go through the straight hair like i think straight hair is beautiful Society also thinks straight hair is beautiful. But society told me my 4C hair wasn't beautiful. They told me my locks were not beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, I don't need in my work to emphasize that all hair is beautiful. We already know that straight hair is beautiful. Hair has texture, so it's like 1A, 2, 2A, even 3B. They'll be like, oh, that's cool. But if you have quote unquote kinky hair, if mm-hmm. you have 4C hair, if your hair grows like in a straight afro, That's not beautiful. And for me, that was really important. I knew I was going to lock my hair up for just because there's no way to write and edit and comb through hair that needs as much combing as my (laughs) hair. For my author photo, I was just like, I need to wait. So I need to keep my afro until my author photo, because Mm -hmm. I want the girls to look at this and be like, whoa, Mm -hmm. her hair is awesome. And it is just like the way my hair grows. It's not straightened. It is not a twist out. It is not a braid out. This is how my hair grows and it's beautiful. Those are the things. It's like, I didn't see that till Viola Davis, you know? I yes. didn't see that. Pita, New York. So I'm like, hey, let me give it to you now. I love weaves. I love locks. I love straight hair. I love braid outs. I love 4C afro. It's like, I love it all. I love mm-hmm. hair. I love everything we could do with hair. But it's like, hey- for all the people who are like, hey, the way your hair grows is unprofessional. The way your hair grows is ugly. What is, for me, it's like, no, that's what I need to fight back against. Yes. It's my job to say all these hairs are, of course, it's beautiful. Everything is beautiful. My job to remind people, mm-hmm. like, hey, guess what? Your black skin, which you're bullied for, which you're made to feel other for, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's the sun.
0: Yes, You know, when you brought this up about your author photo, I didn't even notice it, just FYI. And this is a good thing, right? For in my point of view where you're like, you know, my author photo, no, I'm going to rock it and show girls that they should be proud. And when I looked back, I turned the book over and I'm looking at your author photo. I'm like, that's amazing. Because for me, when I see this, it just makes it feel very normal. This is reality. For me, I didn't even think twice. This is something, of course, I'm not really to focus on for myself personally, because yeah. I have naturally wavy straight hair, but then I straighten it with a straightener. When I look at this, I'm just like, oh yes, this is reality. This is awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. You know? And I'm glad that you put your photo out like that. And I absolutely encourage that for anyone listening. To also think about what Tomei just said and rock it. Be proud. Because when you do things like that, little moves like that, you're normalizing it. That's what your whole goal is, normalizing it. And for people to accept the beauty and be like, this is part of beautiful too. This is absolutely part of beautiful. And also now going back to what you're saying about skin color. I love that your main character, and I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing her name right. Because in my head, I was reading it as zaley is that yes yeah yeah yeah
1: some people read it as zaley and i'm like no it's zaley
0: you're like don't you see the accent over the e hello (laughs) yeah (laughs) we're gonna be having your episode out before your book comes out so at least they'll go into it knowing how to pronounce your book yeah Yeah. again zaley i love 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 the way you described her features it's so beautiful and stunning and i was admiring her i want skin glowing like that yeah i want hair like that and that's it that's it and you did it the way you described it was so sexy (laughs) not only sexy and sensual but she's strong this girl kills it she's a warrior and she's strong as hell and i love the way you described her not just for her looks but you absolutely described her for her strength even more the substance within her
1: that's exactly it. There's beauty in everything. Again, it's just about reclaiming it. I remember when Lupita Neongo came on the scene and seeing her and everything. And I was like, wow, for the first time in my life, I wish my skin was darker. Obviously, yeah. the ultimate goal is you accept yourself and you love yourself for everything. When I have always been pushed to keep my skin lighter mm-hmm. or I've been... Made to feel and like covet lighter skin, mm-hmm. having someone that made me wish my skin was darker that was a counterbalance. It's all a journey towards self love, but that's part of it. And being like, Hey, Lupita is hot, hey, mm-hmm. Jennifer Aniston is hot, hey, everyone is hot, you know, yes. like there's it's just about being like, Okay, all of this is beautiful, yes. all of this is great, yes. even though. We have to, and again, all of it is ultimately about, like, learning to love yourself, and that's yes. what, you know, my journey has been, and that's what the book journey has been. But I think that's also why it resonates with people who aren't Black. It's, it's not even, like, just a Black thing. It's not even just a minority thing. It's, like, every single person has that thing about themselves that society has been, like, hey, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. By the way, this is wrong, and this is bad. And it sounds cliche, but that is the thing that makes us magical.
0: Yes. And that's what the whole thing is about. I think you did it beautifully. I think you reclaimed your beauty and your power beautifully. I especially was wishing that I could rock her hair, (laughs) rock her glowing skin, rock that intelligence and that strength and her fighting skills. Everything you did such a wonderful job reclaiming and I admire you for that I couldn't yeah. stop telling <laughs> moonlin about it I was like babe I cannot wait till you get to read this but you're not allowed to touch it till I'm done <laughs> yeah because she reads so fast so I'm like worried she's gonna hog it from me because I was already yeah. so into it I'm like not nah, don't touch it until I'm done Just like, <laughs> okay I'm proud of you you're able to read through it so fast usually you're so slow I need to know how long was this process yeah I mean I'll start with the whole pro- and even a little bit the process
1: behind the process because was like an explosion. The revision, if we did something just about revision, that would be like a whole separate episode.
0: My heart (laughs) would hurt if you told me that you had to go through a revision process where you had to hack out half of the words. I would be so sad. I'll start
1: from the beginning beginning. We'll hopefully cover everything. But essentially, the story of this book Even actually starts with the first book I tried to get published. That book is the one I started after seeing The Hunger Games. And I saw that my freshman year in college. My senior year of high school, I had that big revelation of being like, okay, you need to learn to love yourself.
0: Didn't you go to Harvard? I did. You are so humble. I'm laughing because there was this one
1: writing teacher at Harvard who would not let me into his class. What? And I applied for five semesters. And after being rejected for the fifth time, I was like, oh, instead of trying to figure out what's wrong, let me just go ask him. And he was just like, oh, well, you can't start your a story like this. And like, this can't be all caps. And like, you don't use more than one explanation. And I was just like, okay, you know, like very surface level critique. I was like, you projected rejected me for five semesters. So is there any like content related critique that you could give? And he was like, well, if you're doing things like this, I can't teach you how to write. I'm having my hair flip moment because mm-hmm. I was, the day I come in and I yeah. like, I just got the most touching review that I have heard throughout this entire process from a bookseller from the Harvard bookstore like it was the most oh my God. Made me yes. up. and I was just who the day I am in Boston and I walk into <laughs> your office and I slam this book down play, and say remember you couldn't teach me how to write and then I hair flip and I like yes. go walk out um, <laughs> Slow motion walk, even though it'll be, he'll be like He'll be like, what are you doing? Who are you? And I'll be like, you, you don't deserve me. You know, like I'll the coach and, You know, he'll be very confused because obviously I was a blink. Can in I be there the
0: just to g- film all yeah. this? I, I volunteer to be, like- <laughs> to be your, your camera person.
1: This is my one ABC drama redemption moment. Then a nice 60s tune will play in the back as I, I see this all. But I did have really great teachers and very encouraging teachers at Harvard too. So, this one non teacher, it was obviously for the best. So, okay, I definitely side noted. Let me get
0: back. jumping back in. I'm so sorry yeah. I cut you off. So, your first story you said that when you're watching Hunger Games, it inspired you.
1: And it was funny because even just today, I was for something, I was looking at Hunger Games gifts and I saw one of Amanda when she was so small, when she was playing Rue. Yes, yes. And then, so I had my senior year revelation, like, hey, you need to start writing these books with black characters and characters who look oh, like you wow. to learn to accept yourself. So that was my internal trigger. But then I saw The Hunger Games, I loved it, but then seeing the backlash against this small black child who was brutally murdered and people being like, oh, it's not sad because she was black or, oh, why they make all the good characters black? I hate it. Like seeing. Such real hatred against one child and two brought into a fictional universe. I remember Mm -hmm. I saw The Hunger Games and then I saw The Backlash and then I saw The Hunger Games again. And like I had been tearing up when Rue died in the first movie. But Mm -hmm. in the second time I watched it in theaters, I was sobbing because I was like, how can people hate us this much that they can? this isn't sad. So I was destroyed. But as you can see from my professor's story, I get sad, but then I'm like, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm very motivated by I'll show you. So sometimes people are like, oh, this was your plan for freshman year. I was like, okay, no, I was angry. And like, I had goals. I did not plan all this. You cannot plan this. <laughs> <laughs> I will write something so good and it'll be so black. If you don't see it because it's black, you're going to miss out. And mm-hmm. that's going to suck. And then people Either talk you're about on
0: it. or off the boat. Get out. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, like You're going to want to be on this boat. So yeah. that was my external catalyst. And I started the first book that I seriously tried to get published. But now, obviously, this was very slow. I basically started learning about publishing, learning about writing. Like I had written my whole life, but I had never finished a story. And so just even learning how to do that. And obviously with college, you know, it kind of fell to the wayside. So it was basically senior year of college where I got serious about it again. It was basically a three to four year process from first draft to revision and querying. And I started querying it last January my mind is is a boggle of stuff but I was working at a job I was like a production studio in in LA and I would work that job from nine to six
0: what were you doing in the production studio it was
1: data-driven marketing so we were analyzing things and trying and using like the insights from those analyses to be like okay here's how we can market this more efficiently Oh wow you see it and I thought it was going to be like my maybe dream job, but I knew I wanted to do something more creative. So I already knew I was lying to myself to a degree, but I didn't realize the degree I was lying to myself until I started writing after and revising my first book after work. And I would say, oh, okay, I'm doing this to avoid the traffic, even though I did not have that much traffic on my way home. But then suddenly it went from, okay, I did this for two hours. I did this to to avoid traffic, to working my quote unquote, well, day job from nine to six. And then I would be writing and revising from like six to midnight. And it just grew and grew and grew until I was doing that for almost four or five straight months. And I realized when I was sending my first book out, the reason I had thrown myself at like kind of a second job was because I wanted someone to see my book and be like, "Hey, guess what? You can do this from nine to six too. Mm. You don't just have to do this at night. Like you are talented." And of course, it doesn't work like that. That book just got rejected, and for good reason. But I got feedback: "Hey, you have something. I just can't sell this book." And the Ravenclaw was like, "Oh, why can't they sell it?" And I'm like, "Oh, I wrote something for the Harry Potter generation. You know, like I haven't mm. been up to." so this is it's a good story but it is like i read red queen and i was like okay we do not need to wait for book seven anymore book <laughs> seven i like we need to start now and i remember i was such a like butthole too because i was about to query and i was like let me see what do people like right now oh there's a little book called red queen who's been on number one for 40 weeks i'll check that out that'll be a good gauge and then the second paragraph i literally said fuck like yeah. I it's like <laughs> In my house, I was in the kitchen table. I was like, fuck, my book is not ready. (laughs) And I think the reason I said fuck was because I knew this book wasn't gonna do it. I didn't give up on that book yet. I was like, let me go back and do one more revision, get everything I can out of this. But I think I knew then it wasn't gonna work. So then when agents came back and were like, hey, you have something, but this is not what people want to read right now. And it was very easy to figure out why. But then I went double Ravenclaw, where it's like, okay, I can research. I can figure out what they want to read and what story ideas I have that are more in line with that. And I read Shadow Shaper. It's funny, the title of Children of Blood and Bone is actually from Shadow Shaper.
0: Oh.
1: So it's by Daniel Jose Older. That was an amazing book, not because it was this diverse urban fantasy, so I'd never gotten that before, but also because... He has this moment in the book. It's literally two paragraphs, but the lead character, uh, Sierra, she's Afro-Latina, and she has this internal monologue about the self-esteem issues you have as a woman of color. And it was like two paragraphs. You were talking about shaking. I was, what? How? How? why am I reading the story of my life and in a more eloquent way than I have ever been able to <laughs> talk about it? I was like, it's in my mind. How did he reach in my mind and put this? And I remember that was the first time I lost it on Twitter. Wow. Because I'd never contacted an author before, but I was just like, Daniel! And, you know, And I just, <laughs> it, was just, it was four tweets in a row and I was just like, I just have to say, is the most beautiful thing. Like it was like all caps <laughs> because it was so powerful and I was just, oh my God, books are amazing. You explain something so in internal, but in such a universal way that everybody can understand it. People who go through it can feel seen. People who don't go through it can know very what seriously. It, feels like. yeah. it was so amazing. And it was just this part of it. And this it was again, like two paragraphs, but it was incredible. And then I read an ember in
0: the ashes. I noticed a little, okay, don't want to, <laughs> uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, in uh, 54. I literally have a bookmark right here, and I'm sorry I dog-eared it because I couldn't find a little – I don't even have bookmarks. Sorry to correct you, but in my copy it's page 40. Oh. But I love you a different I know let me see if it's the same because I, I know there's like different things but yeah you know we know no, what we're talking about. but at least you know I was reading your book for real yeah. so I have it here I had the biggest smile on my face I need to ask Tomi this she must oh. be buddies or something Wasaba. I
1: read An Ember in the Ashes I put it down and I'm like oh my god god I have gone to the moon and back like I need <laughs> to write something that could even be in the same bookstore as this <laughs> let alone the same shelf I go into Barnes and Nobles or like, I'll go into like like mysterious galaxy here like I'll look for an ember and I'll just turn to the back and I'll rub my hands over the last two words and like, I'll feel it all and I'll be like
0: oh,
1: Elias," and then I'll like close it and if I had a book tattoo it would be the last two words wow. of an ember
0: I hope you told Saba all of this
1: oh my gosh i'm gonna meet her for the first time in three days and i've told her i'm gonna cry on your skin <laughs> oh i told you i just laughed
0: so hard i just coughed so deeply <laughs> it just tickled my chest that was
1: so funny. it's very specific but it's, is it isn't gonna be weird yes but i have given <laughs> you months of notice that is gonna <laughs> prepare happen.
0: yourself Winter is coming.
1: For me, I'm bringing like makeup waves. We are talking right now because of that book.
0: That is amazing.
1: And I read Shadow Shaper and Ember back to back. So it set the stage for here is what's possible. You can bring people into this world. You can give them this crazy adventure, these highs and these lows. This is possible. With Shadow Shaper, you can teach people in a way that isn't preachy. You can help break down something that is so built into who you are and what you have to live with. But you can break that down for everybody in a realistic way. And for me, the part that I wanted to break down was just the fear, because that was a time where it was back to back to back headline, it would be a headline about a, a, like a police shooting of an unarmed black man or child, mm-hmm. or even woman, or it would be, Oh, remember that police officer that shot this child in cold blood six months ago? Well, this went to court, all charges are being dropped. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was back to back, hey, you're being murdered and you're never going to get justice. And that's why in the beginning, I was saying it's so important to protect yourself and protect your mental health. Because for yeah. me, there were days, I remember the week where it was actually back to back to back to back where it was outland Sterling and Philando Castile, I was just in my bed sobbing. And I was sobbing, not because I was, yes, I was sad. I was heartbroken. Why are we even alive if this is how it's going to end and there's going to be no justice? But I was also sobbing because I had to teach that day because I was okay. teaching part-time and it was in the summer and I was terrified to get in my car. Well, that's the thing that I don't think people understand that was my shadow shaper motive with this is it's like, hey, every time I get in my car, be it to grab food or get jelly beans at CVS or something, like every time I sit behind the wheel of my car, I wonder if I am going to die and I live in America, but this is my daily experience. And I can't even begin to think about that for, my brother used to do Uber for like a period of time and I was terrified. My dad lives in Chicago and then the Sandra Bland thing happened and I'm, my mom drives all the time. Yes, there's the injustice part of it. And that's one thing we have to fight. But I was like, I don't think what people are realizing is even if you are not the newest hashtag, it is a deep internalized fear that these things you need to do every day are going to be the thing that leads to your death. Or the fact that every time I see a police officer, whether or not I'm in a car or not, my chest seizes. I have a mini anxiety attack. It Mm is a biological effect of everything. The same way Shadow Shaper had that moment, I was like, that's the moment I wanna have to really understand, hey guys, obviously we know these things are wrong. Obviously we know we need to change them, but also understand That a lot of the people in your life have to deal with confronting their own mortality on a daily basis. That was what was happening with my life. And then reading Shadow Shaper and Ember, I was seeing what was possible. And then Angie came along. And said, hey, oh, by the way, these things that you care about, people care. The hate you give is such an inspiring story. But the story behind that story, that was, oh, I can do this. This thing I want to do this that I now know. Because when my first book wasn't going anywhere and I was like, why is this crushing me? It was, oh, because I've been lying to myself. And obviously I've known this all my life, but I've also lied to myself for my entire life. And so I was like, can I even do this? Can I do this? And I was starting to get to that point where I'm like, okay, well, what do you need money for? Rent and Thai food. Where can you get that money? (laughs) Like, that's like, you know, we start getting into the budget and the Excel sheet and we start thinking like, what's possible? But then Angie blew that out of the water and she's like, hey, it's, it's extra possible. And obviously it's like those, those aren't the everyday stories, but it's still just seeing it, seeing someone who looks like me writing I wanted to write about being treated the way Twilight was treated. It's the thing, it's never been that. And like, this isn't a, an insult to anything at all, because obviously, I love story. We've talked about Harry Potter a hundred times, but the core of a lot of the big franchises aren't about a deeply troubling thing. It's not to say that they don't have metaphors. Harry Potter taught us what Voldemort looks like, which is why. The Harry Potter generation did not vote for Trump because we know what Voldemort looks like. Maybe I'm lying it, but that's true. We started doing the Voldemort memes pretty early on in Trump's campaign because we know what it's like when someone says, hey, Mudblood, you don't belong here. We know that. We know it's wrong. We've grown up on that. We identify as Ravenclaw.
0: Damn, that was powerful. I didn't even think
1: of it that way. It is ingrained in us. So we were taught very powerfully what it looks like when someone is saying, hey, all these people who are just like me, all these purebloods, great, all these purebloods, now we're gonna put on our hoods and kill you, we know that's wrong. And yes, should we need Harry Potter to know that's wrong? No, but that's a whole other story. The Harry Potter generation has had a clear illustration of what is bad, and when we see that in our world, we recognize it right away, we don't need this whole other education, like, mm-hmm. hey, if someone says immigrant, get out of here, we know, and we're like, why is that so familiar? Oh, it's like when they tried to get rid of all the quote unquote mud blood. So it's not mm. to say that these big franchise things don't have these incredible metaphors and incredible powerful lessons for empathy and good humanity. To have that be the core of it is something that didn't happen, you know, a Temple Hill is like, we have these amazing adventures in Maze Runner and, you know, the Fault in- Like, these are amazing stories. So it's not a knock on any of these stories. But it's never been, oh, big book deal, big instant movie deal for a Black protagonist. Mm-hmm. You're like, wait, did I read that right? That's when I was, oh, this is possible for me too. I didn't think it was possible for me before Angie, because I'd never seen it. And that's the core of what the whole representation thing is about, which is why it's not even worth breaking down all the clear logical things. If you don't see it, you don't believe it. You do not see a black Disney princess, then you believe you can't be a princess. It doesn't matter if you dress up as Mulan and Mulan is awesome. You still deep down think you can't be a princess. And if you don't see Olivia Pope, then you think you can't be powerful. If you don't see... Davis, you think you can't be flawed, but also an incredible lawyer. Like, if you don't see Lupita, yeah,
0: you need the on, representation.
1: You need it because it, it's like that's just how humans work. So, when we see someone who looks like us doing something it suddenly is possible for us to do it too. And that's what Angie was. So you take this big explosion of all these things, and not even explosion, it was like a dramatic collision of all of these things from the course of January of last year to March, April, to like April of last year. So it's like Shadow Shaper, ember in the Ashes, Angie, me realizing that I wanted to write full time, me getting these helpful rejections, me kind of seeing these things. It gave me the courage to be like, okay, hey, this is what I want to do. Let me just go as hard as I possibly can go at it for one to two years, see how far I get, and then I'll reestablish, and then I'll make balance. But I was like, let me see. Even though my first book got rejected, I realized after doing Ravenclaw research on how (laughs) I got my agent, I read a bunch of those posts, and I was like, oh, I actually got a lot of full requests on this book. And I got a lot of like good feedback and that's not normal. Plus, I know why this book isn't sellable. I can concretely see we are the Harry Potter generation, but that doesn't mean we want to read Harry Potter knockoffs. There was a clear information void where I was like, these agents I respect are telling me I have something. I know why they can't sell my book. I need to write another book. Oh, I want to be a writer. Why don't I go for it? I have this idea And the idea was two part. I discovered the Orisha before I started working. I guess it was two summers ago now. I had a fellowship to Brazil through the English department. And so I went there thinking I was going to primarily learn and research about the slave trade there so that I can compare it to the slave trade here and possibly do some kind of epic between two sisters separated by the slave trade and one ends up in in Brazil and then over generations but I was like that's not a book for me that's for Toni Morrison so that became clear very soon That I was like that's not the kind of writer I am (laughs) but then I was supposed to go to this museum that was kind of the focal point of my entire trip and it was closed for renovations and I was like are you kidding me I built my whole itinerary around this I was like oh okay and then it was raining and so I ran into a gift shop the gift shop owner was kicking out people who were just there to avoid the rain. So I was like, okay, Tommy, open those eyes, bright eyes, look like you're going to buy something because that was a period where I couldn't mess up my hair. So I couldn't go back in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, do this and I saw this poster of the Orisha and I was like what is this I was with someone I was like it looks like African the last airbender this is a technical term because Orisha technically aren't gods and goddesses so this is a whole technical thing we don't need to go into that but at the (laughs) time I was like oh oh these African gods and goddesses I've never seen anything like this this is amazing it's part of that representation thing where you're like, oh yeah, we can be sacred. We can be a magical deities. It was part of that, and I knew I wanted to do something with that. Quickly, I had sort of a middle grade spin-off idea, but it was in its early stages. My ideas either come to me, or I get a little bit of it, and I just have to really tug on that thread. So I got a little sprinkle of an idea, And I knew I was gonna do something with it, but it wasn't powerful enough to go straight into it. Two years later, this was, I think, March. So March, in my big influential January to (laughs) March time thing, I saw this picture of a girl It was a digital art painting and it was this black girl with vibrant green hair. You know, it's not, no one in the book looks like that, but it was just so beautiful. I remember I went into work and I kept showing people. I was like, look at this, look at this, look at this. And they're like, cool. Did you make this? I was like, no. They're like, do you know the person who made it? I was like, no, I found it on the internet. And they're like, why are you selling this to me? And I'm like, because it's beautiful. (laughs) Get on the same page, man. It's just like, how can you? I was like, we shouldn't even be working. We should all be looking at this. (laughs) And I was just overcome with how epic this picture was. I couldn't get this girl out of my head. And it was the first time I had an experience like this where I was like, God, what does she do? What does her world look like? And the picture is very sci-fi. I was just thinking about it and thinking about it. And that night I was talking on the phone with my boyfriend because he lived in San Diego at the time and I was in LA. And I was just like, hey, what if this girl was a fisherman? She had to go to the market. Yeah, and I won't give away more because the book isn't out yet, but I had the <laughs> inciting incident. And I was like, is that cool? That sounds cool. He was like, that sounds pretty cool. I was like, I'm going to go with it. So then... <laughs> (laughs) I put all these post-it notes on my wall. And so the book came together in a snap. I've never had a writing experience like that, nor do I think I will again. (laughs) (laughs) So it was this collision of everything, everything in my life, everything in the world, everything that other creators were putting out, everything that I was realizing about myself. And then having this catalyst picture, because again, Zaylee isn't the girl in this picture I saw. This girl made me think of that incident and then from the inciting incident the rest of the story exploded and then comes pitch wars which is this and i knew it had a good track record of getting people agents and book deals and the year before i had found out about pitch wars three weeks too late to enter so for a whole year i had been i'm going to enter pitch wars and you could enter in august now we're at march i feel like i need a whole diagram for this (laughs) now we're in april we're in april And I know I want to enter Pitch Wars in August, a couple months later, but I now know I don't want to do it with the book I know isn't going anywhere. I want to do it with this book that doesn't exist yet. So I'm like, okay, I need to write Children of Blood and Bone fast, and then I need to revise it fast, and I need to pray to God that there's enough in it that some mentor will see it and say, I want to revise this further with you. That meant I left my job in May and I switched to part-time teaching so I would have more time to write. But that meant I outlined the book in May. I wrote the first draft in June. I did a crazy second draft in July because my first draft, it was X says this or like they're in desert. You know, <laughs> so I actually like wrote something that was a story in July Wow. and I submitted in August and I got in. And so then I was revising with insane. my- <laughs> People like, you write so fast. I was like, no, 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 no. I just left my job to do this. So I need to go hard. I need to throw, give it all. I wouldn't even be like, oh, do this. No, there were definitely moments where my body's like, you can only take so much, which has been the entire story of book one, where it's like, what are the limits of my body? Let's find
0: out. I can't believe you did it in that time span. I'm looking at the thickness of your book. Your brain must have been fizzled out.
1: Even now, we're in November now. I'm putting the finished spot, like final touches on it. And basically though, I was mostly on a break for half of October. I told you, I write my whole life down because my brain is a mess. Like I don't understand <laughs> dates and times. But I am working on this book for straight 16 months with sometimes a week off in between. Like this, I had a little break in mid-October. And now I'm getting back into it. And so this was like almost a month off. So before that, it was 16 straight months. My first draft was 83,000 words. My second draft was 97,000. The Pitch Wars draft that got me an agent was like 105,000. The one we submitted was like 110,000. Now it's like 140,000. It'd be one thing if it just grew and grew and grew, but things changed. (laughs) So we cut out parts of the middle, rewrote it, and I'd be like, oh, it's still
0: not working. We wrote it again. It was basically like this jigsaw puzzle. It sounded like the mentor had a pretty big impact and influence. Oh, yeah. Her
1: name is Ashern. She's an editor at Page Street. I'm sorry, I got excited just because it's like, (laughs) she was an assistant editor when she was a mentor. She was an assistant editor at Entangled Publishing. It's been really exciting seeing her rise too because now she's acquiring books. She's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant woman. And she, they say the best editors help you write the story you thought you wrote the first time. That is exactly, she's like, okay, You have this, this, this. It's amazing. But what if this? I remember reading her edit letter because I was in the process of moving to San Diego and I was supposed to be helping my boyfriend build her bed. But I was like, I need to read this. Good luck, boyfriend. On your own. I'll be right back. And I read it and I got up from my seat and I ran into the room where he has this half constructed Ikea bed. And I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And he's like, what? And I was like, she has the best idea and he's like what is it I was like I can't tell you I don't want to ruin it for you but it's so good oh my (laughs) god and then I ran out
0: I feel so bad for him. He's left dealing with this bed and also on a cliffhanger. This poor yeah, guy. Like, you know, you'll know. you know in like two months after I revise <laughs> it, but it's gonna be so good. Wow. So how does that work? Pitch Wars, this is yeah. the one by Brenda Drake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we like, have Brenda on the show. Remind me again, and also any new listeners, because we've gotten a lot of new listeners for the show. Yeah. Are you giving your synopsis and then you have multiple different people? Yeah. So let me
1: walk through, because I think Pitch Wars is the greatest thing. On that earth,
0: because I was like, how on earth was it just by coincidence you met someone who understood your story? Unless you were able to select them in the end.
1: Well, so that's the other part of it. You know, I'm a religious person, and I really felt there are too many things that happened too perfectly for it to be like, like, yes, I'm Ravenclaw. Yes, I got my list. I got my Excel sheets. It is all meant to be. I could not have planned for Ashley Hearn to be a mentor the year that I do, you know, because it's Mm -hmm. like my book would have been completely different if she wasn't my mentor. But yeah, so Pitch Wars, the way it works is you have a bunch of agented and published authors Sign up to be mentors to unagented authors. And so this year I was a mentor. So we're cheering on our mentee in the agent round. But basically, how it works is you have to have a revised manuscript. So you can't submit a messy first draft. You want it to be revised to show its potential. And you submit it to four to six mentors, just like agents have manuscript wish lists. Mentors do their wish list. Me and my co mentor, we had our wish lists. So we're like, we want young adult fantasy, if you're a fan of this, this, and this, this, Mm. this. So we were pretty specific. Um, But yeah, so you can make an educated decision and you submit to four to six people and then they will, just like an agent, will request your fulls and things like that. And from that, from all of the people who submit to them, they pick one person to mentor for two months in intense revision. And then there's an agent round that happens this time. Every mentee in Pitch Wars gets to be in this agent round if their manuscript is in good enough shape or polished Uh there's always so much more you can do like leave a good impression exactly it's done on a website so there's 300 different posts on this pitch wars website and then agents go in and comment on your post it has a 300 word excerpt so some of it is like a pitch for the book some of it is the first beginning of the book then agents can go and comment and be like, oh, please send me the full, please send me this. Oh, wow. Okay. I was getting emotional because all this happened last year. Because last year, my post got the most agent requests and that's offers. And I'm thinking I'm about to go to Y'all Fest this weekend. And this time last year, my current agents, Hillary Jacobson and Alexandra Machinist, they were, they told me they were on a plane going to see Suba to hear. And they were reading my book. What? Isn't that
0: crazy? Yeah. Everything was crazy. It was laid out exactly the way it's meant to be. And it's playing out. Oh, my gosh. This is insane. Mostly because I've had some
1: time away from intensely revising. So I'm getting to reflect more. But especially, like, the timeline of all of this. It's just been like, wow, oh my God. But yeah, so
0: that's what Pitch Wars is. Does a mentee usually receive two author mentors? It's
1: their choice. So Ashley, my mentor, mentors alone. For me, just because I knew it was my first time, I mentored with a person who became my best friend through Pitch Wars last year. As a mentee, her name is Kit Grant.
0: I love Kit. She's in our community. Okay, yeah. So you know, she is literally everything. She's your co-mentor. This rings a bell because I remember she posted some, something about this a while ago several months ago in our facebook community because we have a private facebook group and yeah. she posted in there like, hey just wanted to remind everybody this is pitch wars round and me and my co-mentor and i could have sworn i saw your name that's why i was trying to get to like, hey, who's your co-person because it hit yeah. me when you said co-mentor i'm like i know it was someone in our community and it just hit me it's kit yes she's yes, so sweet it's
1: kit. she's it so sweet you And she would be so good for you to talk to, not because she is literally brilliant, but also because her voice is like the best
0: voice. She (laughs) had her voice featured in our 100th episode. We had eight total listeners that we were selecting whoever left messages. And she's one of the eight that we featured. Oh my god, her voice sounds like honey. And I was like telling Moonlin, like, God, she speaks so well. Also, her story was so inspiring and brought me to tears.
1: Her stories are so inspirational, but she's also one of the smartest humans I have ever met so like we would be on co-calls with our mentor guiding her and then kit would go on this tangent and i'd be like oh my god please just teach an mfa course (laughs) because not only does it sound amazing but her book it's called the court of miracles i'm so excited to read her revised draft even the early pitch wars draft i read was some of the best world building I have ever
0: seen. That's so amazing to hear. Cause I was like telling my girlfriend this girl, I hope she writes a story. And when it comes out, she needs to be on the show. And I love that you guys became besties. I always think that's such a beautiful thing where you find someone you have so much in common with, the same passions, you actually create a genuine relationship with. It's amazing.
1: It's actually one of the best parts about pitch. Like, obviously, getting an agent is great. Obviously, if that leads to a book deal, great. But to have the person that you're gonna DM like crazy, <laughs> she is married and like they make jokes that we're talking to our real spouse. Because yeah, like your work life. Yeah, <laughs> like it's just real and you get it on every level. It's just a, an amazing source of support.
0: Oh, my God. I love that. Oy, oy, oy. Okay, so that makes me really excited. I would love to encourage more listeners to jump on Pitch Wars. That definitely worked for you. So that's basically how you got agented and represented.
1: Yeah, even I didn't know all of this until later, but it also increased the book's hype, which carried over into the book deal and the film deal because at that time, it was the most agent request that had ever been made on a Pitch Wars post. And there was also kind of the most offers in one situation. So it was this feeding frenzy, which meant editors heard about it. And oh, then hair like, flips film people. Yeah. So it was just like, <laughs> oh, it was all these things. And I didn't know because my agents, we still revised the book for like three months. I knew there was some people being like, send this to me or or tell your agents to send this to me. So I knew there was interest, but I didn't know the level of it. Until we did go out on sub. And then I was like, oh, (laughs) this is going to happen. This is real. (laughs) Was
0: this when you also got your movie deal? So the movie deal came after the book deal. I heard it was quick, like almost back to back.
1: Everything has been, and okay, I don't mean too quick in like a complaining way. I just mean everything (laughs) happened. It It was so intense with revision. And I was so in that mode. And then the book deal thing happened and that was a crazy experience. And the book deal, like I think we went on sub on a Thursday and like we found my home in Macmillan the next Thursday. So I'm being like, oh, this is real. This is happening. This is my dream. It's the weekend too. I can sleep because I've been talking to so many editors. <laughs> and then on Monday, the movie offer came in. I wasn't even done processing the The book book deal, deal. even now I'm not done processing it. And not just because of the size, but when you have a secret dream your entire life, and it's like, hey, it's gonna come true, but also, hey, it's coming true with people who are so passionate and so excited about this I couldn't process that and then the movie thing happened and I was like this isn't real and then I talked to the movie people and I was just like okay you guys it's just me you can tell me if you're lying because they're like do you have any questions and my basically my question was like is this real and so
0: <laughs> that's so cute I was
1: Like, I don't believe this and so it took a long time I've had to interact with them enough times to be like okay don't think we're joking. Yeah, I think this but is like just, not a prank now. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this would be the best prank. And <laughs> I would cry, but I'd be like, that was a good one guys. So couldn't process that. And then a week later we started editing. That's and insane. like I said, the book was around 400 word pages. When we started editing and now it's around 600 word yeah, pages. Yeah, I
0: just literally forgot <laughs> just to see how many pages it is. When you said you found your house, Macmillan, how did that work? Yeah,
1: I know I can't go into all the details, but it was a crazy situation because it's a story of three, not wars, but like I just say wars because of pitch wars. Because before pitch wars, like you submit to your mentor and if two mentors or like two or more mentors really want you, then the day before it's announced, you're contacted. And then they'll say, Hey, these two mentors really want you, but they can't decide. So you get to decide. So that was my first experience, like picking someone who I was like, okay, I think this is right for me and right for my story. And if you don't get warred over in Pitch wars, it doesn't mean there's not a war, like especially that I was a mentor this year. A lot of this stuff happens behind the scenes because Pitch Wars is ultimately about mentoring talented voices. So someone will be like, oh, I want this, but like, I also really like this. And if that means these two people get in, then I'm going to do that. So a lot of this happens behind the scenes, but if, if they can't work it out behind the scenes, then you go to war. So that was my first experience with Ashley and another mentor. And when I read Ashley's edit letter, I was like, this is what my book needs. So it was a clear choice. And she was like, this isn't the last time you're going to be deciding, by the way. And I was like, oh, we'll see. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And then the agent stuff happened. And that was pretty crazy because it's a big decision. And I knew what a big decision it was. Because I had made the Pitch Wars decision and it, I had made like the right one for me. Like it's not to say if I'd gone with the other mentors, my book wouldn't have gotten agented or wouldn't have sold, but it would have been a completely different story. Rewrote the last 150 pages of my book during Pitch Wars. It would have been a very different story. Yeah, so I knew this decision was important and not just for my book, but for my career. And I got to Hillary and Alexandra and like, you know, they were the first agents to be like, yo, your book needs a lot of work. And I was like, oh, really? Because other agents had been like, oh, no, we just clean it up and we can like sell it after Thanksgiving, which was obviously very alluring because you're like, oh, all my dreams could come true. But when they were like, oh, this needs a lot of work. I was like, I don't know what work it needs, but I trust that they do. Mm -hmm. And they did. There's a lot of reasons that I went towards them, but there's so many reasons. And they have been the most incredible agents. So any querying writers, query them. They are amazing. They're open to query. That had been the right decision, because my book did need what they said it needed. And it was yes. way better. when we took it out on submission than would it have been if we went after pitch words. And that's not to say the other agents were wrong. It's not about being wrong or right. It's about everyone has a different vision for your story. And it's about saying, oh, here's what my vision is. These visions align the most. And their vision just happened to involve more revision. Other people, they had pitched some revision or they pitched changing this. But when they talked about what was missing, I was like, oh, I didn't even realize all these things you're saying about my story. And you're correct. So by the time I got to the final choice for this book, which would be like who would publish it. First, it was like seeing if we were going to have choices. And then it was like, oh, we will. And then I thought, okay, well, it'll kind of be clear to me, but it wasn't because all these editors were editors of books I love. They were all smart and talented and passionate. So there wasn't any person where I could be like, nah, (laughs) You know, like everyone was like bring so I was pretty confused, but part of it is I'm a big believer in passion and I don't want to be like, oh, this person was more passionate or less passionate. There are ways to kinda gauge passion and how and a lot of that comes with how aggressive someone is when they offer this is what I'm gonna throw down. And McMillan threw the fuck down. (laughs) Oh yes,
0: and hell yes, there goes the winner. Ding ding ding. (laughs)
1: It was a very over, like a wonderfully positive but overwhelming process. And I was like, what's going on? All these people are so great. Things started to get more concrete. Obviously having my agents too as a sounding board for all of this craziness was incredible. Their guidance was amazing. But, yeah, it became clear that, yes, everyone was passionate about it. Everyone was excited about it. McMillan's passion much higher. <laughs> and I knew McMillan would be a good home because of, I've seen the way they've treated debuts, and they just killed it with Carval. And so I was like, and they were also home to Lee Bardugo. You know, every yeah. house has legends, you know? So it's not like, you know I'm obsessed with Seventeen here. Who is that penguin? You know, yes. Victoria Averyard with Red Queen and Harper kicked my ass. <laughs> she told me nicely through her epic story, <laughs> what <which> didn't <laughs> then tell me later. So every place has those people. But we were like, oh, my God, so inspired by you and motivated by you. But yeah, Macmillan, yeah, they just made it very clear what how important it was going to be to them. And for them with my editors, had I gotten, if editor me now could talk to the person making a decision, I would have just been able to do it for the editorial vision. Because the thing is, the sub thing happened so fast that editors gave their visions, but they weren't super concrete in the sense that they couldn't be. They had just flown through a 400 page book a day. So mm-hmm. they couldn't get that concrete. But like my editor, I have two editors, but one I worked with on the revision side is Tiffany Liao.
0: People keep mentioning her. This woman is a
1: genius and I don't use that lightly my god what we have done with this book and she is everything
0: Tiffany Liao she sounds Chinese American Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with Nick Stone about her book Dear Martin and she was talking about how her editor is also Chinese American this older Chinese American woman who's like fierce and badass and she can see things that most people can't And then I did ask, like, how important it is to have someone who's also ethnic to be looking through. Because for me, Mm -hmm. I would think it's really important. If I were in that position, I would choose someone who I know would understand similar struggles or challenges or similar messages that I'm trying to get through and even themes. Yeah, And that's something that Nick mentioned. It was important to her. I'm also curious for you, how important was it for you or did it not affect anything it was just more so how strong she was at spotting things
1: in the decision making process yeah it was important but it couldn't be a decision factor for me everyone in publishing both on the books are coming out and the people in the industry who are putting the books out Mm -hmm. like we are all working to diversify but sometimes i'll see writers of color be like i'm only going to have an agent an agent of color And I'll be like, are there even five? And that like, I'm not an insult to those agents, but it's like just to think of like how many queries you have to send out and how subjective it is to click on all these levels and be in a perfect world. You could just say, I want to work with this because I know they're going to understand it because they've lived through it. But if there are only five and you send five queries, let alone, let's just say they all represent your genre. Not every agent does YA, not every agent does middle grade, not every agent does adult. But let's say you're that person of color and you're like, I'm only gonna have a black agent. I keep my ear to the ground. I know of one black agent right now, and that agent doesn't represent the stuff I write. So to then take that mentality into sub, mm-hmm. and be like, hey, this book is like an allegory for the modern black experience. I need a black editor. We don't have enough yet. Mm-hmm. So not to say that the people aren't called qual- like they are, and they're great, but to say we unfortunately aren't in a position to being like, I'm going to limit it to this. And I'll be like, you can't limit it because that is taking your, an already highly competitive selective pool and narrowing it down to five or one. Yes, it is so important to me. And yes, I think when I was talking to Tiff and Christian Trimmer, who is my other editor, about the story of me and like learning that I wasn't writing myself, I wasn't comfortable with myself, I didn't love myself as I was, they shared things with me where I was like, okay, we get it. Yes, you're not Black, but you get it, even though I don't know your editorial vision. Because again, if I had known the full extent of her editorial vision then... And could flash forward to the future when I was like, oh, yeah, Tiff was right about literally everything. It would have been an easy sell. But we couldn't get into that. But what we did talk about, I was just like, oh, we get it. We mm-hmm. get it. Get it at deepest level and it's not just a person of color thing because again like at the core the book is about living in a society that teaches you to hate what makes you beautiful for me there was another editor who offered who edited one of my favorite books of all time which is also about that that was an editor who I was very excited about and when we were Mm -hmm. talking oh I'm feeling it and this editor was white I believe everything worked out the way it was supposed to and I do believe it is so important look at the hate you give Balzer and Bray unless I'm wrong I'm pretty sure Donna Bray is a white woman and the hate you give is amazing there's also resources now there's like sensitivity readers and and not to say oh sensitivity readers will fix everything because that's not true when you are working with people who are like at the top of their game and so these are a lot of high level editors who have worked their way up have seen things have done this for a long time have learned things that I do believe there is the ability to do it with editors who aren't people of color but I don't think that's a wide range I still Mm -hmm. think that's top of the top of the top. And then it also still matters. What is your book about? Can you connect on that? It's so important, but on the other hand, you still have to also evaluate who is best for this book.
0: The bigger vision of this book. Yeah. That was really helpful. Also, I love that whole process, you breaking it down on, on how you got represented and got your team together, each part of your team. Also, Tiffany Liao. And also, you mentioned a guy. What was his name again? Yeah,
1: Christian Trimmer. So it's like I have two editors. They both work together and handle different parts. So Tiffany and I worked more on the revision part. Mm-hmm. And Christian and I work more on everything else, <laughs> because writing the book is one thing, but then making it an actual book and trying to market that book is a whole other thing.
0: I love this entire conversation. Normally in our private Facebook group, I throw down and say, hey, we have a certain guest coming up. Do you guys have any questions? If time allows, I'll try oh, to yeah, weave it in. Oh I love that. You got quite a few. And it sounds like a few of them personally know you, I think, through Pitch Wars. So we have Megan LaCroix. Oh, Yay! So Megan says, oh my God, say hi to Tommy for me. I'd love to hear the story behind her title and sh- how she came up with it.
1: Oh, Megan. Hi, Megan. Aww. Okay, Megan is the, ba- I do know her from Pitch Wars and she's so sweet. I need to check in with her and like see how she's doing. She's awesome. Uh-uh, I am not generous with my I was <laughs> like, you are giving me life, I am giving you time if you are taking <laughs> it away. So no, this is wonderful. It's making me very happy. But yeah, so it's actually a really specific story because it's from Shadow Shaper. It's an urban fantasy with an Afro-Latina protagonist. And there's this one part, I would say in the last third, where the protagonist, Sierra, it's kind of this Macbeth type scene. So she's confronting these three spirits, but it's kind of like the three witches in Macbeth. And Macbeth is like double, double toil and trouble. So it's kind of has that same poetic thing. And, And Sierra says something and one of these spirits says back to her, Oh, you like, yeah, something, something, you children of blood and bone. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) And I remember I was like, highlight, 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 (laughs) highlight. Oh my god, most epic assortment of words ever kind of decided it was going to be the title before I even knew what the book was about. But then once I got to the book, it ended up being the perfect thing. And I don't want to ruin it because I know you still have a couple chapters left, but once I got to the end of it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what the entire book is about. Blood and ancestry and lineage and all these things you inherit, all this pain, but also the power, all the power you inherit. So it became this perfect thing. But first it was just the coolest words I had ever heard. And they were also part of the book. That was like the first, I say, rung of my journey. Cause I look at Victoria Aveyard and Red Queen and that was like my educational, wrong you know that was the first slap in the face like this is a new thing but when I look (laughs) specifically the creation of this book me saying oh I want to do what shadow shaper did I want to do this thing because this is a middle eastern setting I want to do that but in my setting so they're very important to me and so it was also coming from a book that was so important to me and so important to a journey so yeah it ended up working out but I remember that one time my boyfriend's like you can't just take cool words and make a whole." Well, I was like, I could do whatever I want. He's the best. But yeah, I was like, oh, I should see if this actually relates to the book. But then by the end, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what it's about. This is the theme. And so it was this wonderful discovery process that ended up working out for
0: me you know being able to get through most of the book having that title it almost acted like a guide for me from start to the almost ending there were moments where you definitely explain and i also had it highlighted when i actually saw where one of the characters mentions the full on title and i was like this is so genius so okay i get it yeah
1: it becomes a signpost but it was a
0: discovery and it made me feel i was on a personal journey where i'm like okay we're almost there yeah the core of where children of blood and bone came from within your context and your story mm-hmm. i feel like i'm in a maze and i'm like okay i'm almost there i almost see a clearing like i get it and it just is crazy how titles can either guide you i've definitely read some things where some titles have misled me this one, I was like, yes, give me more. You're giving me life. Give me more. It was wonderful because
1: I think it subconsciously guided me. The way I write is I outline, but I also pants. So I have an outline. So I know that I'm going to get to the end, but then I kind of pants through that outline.
0: I've seen some people using the word planting. In our yeah, I see. It. Writers are realizing outlines are great, but also being flexible because then you discover. Yes, and you tap into your creativity even more. Rather like, than being oh, so rigid. Oh, this cool
1: title actually has significance. It's not just a cool title.
0: <laughs> yes, and inspiration too. Yeah, I love the way you wrap that up beautifully. Thank you, Megan. Yeah, thank you, Megan. Jumping into Megan's comment, where she submitted the question, Tara Turley Creel also said, "Oh yes, say hi for me too." Oh, Go. hi <laughs> So she says Go Pitch Wars 2016 smiley face emoji. I'd love to hear about her childhood when she knew she wanted to write. So we covered that. That's no worries. And how this idea came to her, we also covered that. I liked the second part of her question, how your journey as a debut author is going so far. And it would be nice to hear if you want to share anything else emotionally, how it's been, how it's affected you, even yeah. like your relationship. Real talk. Yeah. All artists, including writers, we are all worrying about Finances. That's a very real talk that we usually have. So overall, how has it been?
1: 85% of it is the dream come true to the highest level humanly possible. (laughs) I won't discount that. It fully is. But the other 15% and the part that people don't see is when I say I have pulled more all-nighters on this over the past 16 months. I'm doing my job. I love my job.
0: Also, to know that you're able to pull the all-nighter, that means you're really passionate and really love what you're doing. I
1: think part of the reason I was like, oh, you know what? I'm really going to go for this writing thing is because I realized no matter what I was doing, I was going to have to work hard. I was Mm -hmm. like, no matter what I was doing, there were going to have to be some all-nighters. There was going to be stress. There was going to be this. So it's like, why not have all those things with what I love? It has been a dream, but it has also been a crazy amount of work, as it should be. So that's not a complaint either. And it's also part of our society. But we see the signings. We see the arcs. We see that. But we don't see the, oh, my body is completely broken. They don't
0: see you rolling up your sleeves side. It's like the whole social media. Yeah. Course, like people are only able to see what you put out there. Exactly. And and it's like, me, oh. In
1: talking situations, I'm not going to be one of those people who be like, hey, my digestive tract just gave out. Like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'll tell you that like any day of the week, I'm not gonna tweet that or put that on Instagram because that's <laughs> not me. Um, I'll put it on my Insta story. I did have an Insta story that was like, "I'm to shit my pants." I, I love you, Yes. <laughs> but. <laughs> because I need to stay up for
0: three days <laughs> to finish this for the I day. I have like, plenty you know, of so like, <laughs> stories of that to share with you, trust.
1: I will share the ugly. I won't tweet the ugly. If you don't know, you're like, oh, this is amazing. And this is the dream where there's nothing wrong. And that's only on the book side. That's not to say the family issues I've had to deal with behind the scenes, the medical issues I've had to deal with behind the scenes that like things that aren't book related, but that are just life. Or the fact that as much joy as this book brings me, every time I see another headline, it's a reminder that this thing isn't just a source of joy, it's an intense source of pain, and so it is fully the dream come true. But there's also a lot of real beyond just normal. Like, hey, it's still a job, and now there's new stresses you deal with as a job beyond the level. Of, oh, once you sell a book, you have to work on the book, but you also need to market the book so people know about it. That is a whole other job. And then there's life, and then there's the fact that I still get in my car, and I'm still. Like, am I if I die today and they trend the book? Am I going to be really pissed in heaven? Because I didn't get to edit that part because I'm that neurotic, you know, it's real. So the world changing, but it hasn't changed enough that the fears and the pain that led me to write this book don't still happen. So I had those days where I was just crying in bed all day because of what was happening. And when I was writing this book, I have still had those days in the past few months because it's still happening, or still having to be like, hey, please don't kill us. So all of that is to say, it's again, it has been a dream. And I never want to downplay the dream. I am living my dream. Like people are excited to read my book, or people who have read my book are saying the kindest word. I feel like I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And it's this great sense of peace. But on the other side of that is like all the other things that come with a job, and that, that just come with life. And then that come with me being as neurotic as I am and obsessing over every word and every comma, and then there being 140,000 words is like, okay, I wish I was a little chiller. But then you can't because you're like, but it's going to be printed. And one day I'm not going to get to change anything. And then up all night again. Again, I love it. And I don't say this as a woe is me. I think I'm blessed. I think I'm blessed to be doing this the way I'm doing it. I'm blessed to be making my living from this fully now, as opposed to the things I was doing before. So I had time to rise. I always in awe of like what's happening, but I think it's important to share these things just because it helps to know, Oh, Hey, nothing is a hundred percent rosy for anyone. And everything comes with work. I'm telling you right now, you can do it, but be prepared to work your ass off or to work both your asses off Mm -hmm. when it happens. I think Nick Stone, she actually just talked about this in her insta story a week before her book came out and she became a bestseller i'm very proud of her i've been traveling and i'm hustling and and she's like and this is the dream but she's like to also all you people though like know that it doesn't stop you don't get the book deal and sit down you know get a book deal like that and coast on it now you need to deliver so it's like oh, And big she's big.
0: delivering while looking flawless, like a human mermaid. Okay.
1: It's amazing. and But it's like it, it keeps going. Yes, absolutely. Even when I wrap up this book this month, now it's book two. And I gotta make book two better than book one. And I don't know how to do that. You know your deadline for book two? Yeah, I'm already on deadline. Shit. Again, I'm living my dream. I Macmillan is the most perfect home. I am happy. I am doing it. There's pressure that comes along you with it too. It. Yes. Yeah, it, it is a job. And I think And that can sometimes, for better or worse, people can sometimes forget that. Yes you did it and I was like yeah if my job if it was a standalone yeah I'll coast for a little bit sure I gotta figure out how to do it better and I don't know how because this first one was an explosion but I'm gonna give you better because that's my job
0: I'm feeling the pressure oh geez <laughs> I feel you and that was some real honesty thank you for that when is your deadline for your second book
1: we still want to publish the second book a year after the first book comes out right
0: but then you have to have it done before that way before that though
1: I remember I was so happy when, when Lee Bardugo she's like most of my books come together in review Vision. For me, I have to get it all out, but then I need to revise and like this is probably the book that's being printed. It's somewhere between draft twenty-five or thirty. Not so much worried about the first draft. It's mostly about making sure we We will get enough time for draft 30 because that's where the story comes together.
0: Thank you for mentioning that because that gives a lot of inspiration and hope for our listeners because so many get stuck with the first draft because we're always focused on as much perfection as possible, right? And it's oh no, we don't know if we describe this character perfectly or describe the situation or plot or setting. But most of the time, it's like like what you said, it's not happening in the first draft. Nothing is supposed to happen.
1: Literally, you can write, This is desert. And now they go. And the reason I'm so aggressive about like reminding people of that is because I, with my first book that I tried to get published, I made the mistake. My first draft took me like three years because I was like, if I just get everything perfect now, I'm not even going to have to edit that much. And then I had to rewrite it 20 times. Now, I know a first draft is just there to give your outline a little bit more and just there to help you discover ideas. You're not really writing the story until you write the second draft. And even then, haha, it's
0: going to change a lot. Thank you for that. Seriously, Tommy, that is so helpful, especially right now when there's so many people that are doing NaNoWriMo. They need to hear this. Because I think a lot of times they're getting stuck again, forgetting that most of the work comes later. And Nano is actually how I finished
1: my first draft. My first, first draft. I'd been chugging along. I had maybe 30,000 words, 50,000 in Nano. And it's what I needed because of the pressure of Nano. I couldn't like stop and make everything perfect. Nano helped me write a first draft the way it's supposed to be written. So it's actually a really good training. If you can't get out of your head, it's like, okay. You want things to be perfect, but the first thing you need to achieve is like, I don't know, 2,500 words a day. And so when that becomes your first priority, suddenly you can't be in your head. And then you just have to go. And that's exactly
0: how a first draft should be written. Tell me you are the (laughs) best. Okay, I'm going to jump into Megan Cooley Peterson's question. She said... For Tomy, I'd love to know how she conducted her research for the story, especially the mythology. So the first part of my research happened
1: on Fellowship in Brazil because I discovered the Orisha kind of halfway through. And I was in Salvador, Brazil. So then even though I'd had this like itinerary that I'd planned out for months to study more of the slave trade stuff, once I discovered the Orisha, there was enough rich resources around me that I could kind of pivot and look like go around the towns, see plays, go to museums. I didn't start checking out actual text about Orisha and the way it spread around the world because it started in Yoruba religion and West Africa, but because of the slave trade, It spread in Brazil, like the Orisha mythology, things related to that. Like the way it spun out is Candomblé in Cuba, Orisha combined with Catholicism to make Santeria, you know. So it had all of these different legs. And I didn't start learning about that stuff until I got back in the States and decided on this story idea. So before, I was just in a place where I needed to be inspired. So that's what I mostly did when I was on the ground in Brazil was, you know, like see these plays, go to museums, find more artwork, try and see some of the candomblé traditions. They offer some of them in like tour type settings. So it was mostly just about getting that experience. And I'm also very inspired by visuals. So that's what I needed at that stage. But then once we get to the publishing stage, it's like, okay, now it's not just about, oh, here's what inspired. It's like, we, this is going out, this needs to be right. So part of that was lots of reading and reading anything I could get my hands on, whether it be about like Santeria or candomblé or like the Orisha or the Yoruba tradition, just because I could learn from everything and the way I could also be informed on how I was making decisions on the way certain religions made different decisions and departed from each other. And then also we were lucky enough to have a really wonderful Santeria priest be a sensitivity reader, which is... doing in the final stages and making sure, because again, no one is supposed to read Children of Blood and Bone and be like, okay, I practice the Aresa religion. I was like, no, you need to do your research if that's what you want. It's like the same way you can't read and I darken and be like, okay, now I'm a Muslim. That's something you're interested in. You were introduced to it in hopefully a beautiful way. And now you can move forward and explore that for yourselves. I don't want anyone to take it as, oh, this is the religion, because it's pulling from a lot of different things. They all have the same source, but because of the slave trade, they've all developed very differently. And so it's a lot of different things that I'm pulling from to build the world of my book. But I am hoping that people see they're like, Oh, I wanna learn more and then actually do get into the specifics of it because it's really beautiful. But yeah, so that was kind of my research process.
0: That was really helpful to dive into Megan was specifically referring to mythology. So for my own personal question, I'm assuming that also your parents share stories with you about Nigeria, because you're Nigerian-American. Yeah. And your parents, they're directly from Nigeria, or they're also Nigerian-American? They immigrated here
1: in their mid-20s. Like, my mom was 23 when she came over, so I think my dad was, like, 26.
0: I also noticed when I looked up Nigeria, I recognized the places that you wrote into the book. Like Lagos, Gombe. Funny
1: story that I just realized... I knew my parents met at the University of Elorin, so that's why I made Zaley and Zane's hometown
0: oh. there.
1: But I found out very recently that my mom was born in Eloran <gasps> and that my dad, their other original hometown before they in Eloran was Ebadon. And I found out my, my grandparents were born in Ebadon, and my dad was supposed to be born in Ebadon, but his head was too big. So they had to fly to Lagos. So I found out like all the hometowns of all of my what? characters actually ended up being the hometowns of all my parents
0: and ancestors. That is so <laughs> crazy. Yeah, so I was like, and that's what I mean when I say the crazy juju. Girl, are you psychic <laughs> or what? What is going on right now? For
1: things like that to happen, that's what I mean when I'm like, other people were writing through me.
0: There is something spiritual yeah, about this whole process. Scary.
1: And I'm like, and that's exactly what the book is about, where it's like, hey, they're with you. They're guiding you. Yes,
0: and you have to have faith. and Yeah. They're always there. I love that. I'm so glad we tapped on that. That's a really cool tidbit to know, especially for listeners to look forward to when they're going to grab your book. And FYI, y'all better grab copies. So <laughs> okay. Catherine Fraser said... I know that Tommy's deal came with a lot of excitement and attention. I think it will be interesting to know how the experience is for her as a debut author. And also if she'll ever get tired of seeing that striking cover. Okay, so we cover the first half. Do you oh. think you'll ever get tired of seeing your beautiful never, cover? Never. Because also I didn't have to create
1: it. You know, so Rich Diaz is the amazing artist who created it. And I knew when I found out he was going to be my cover designer, I knew I was in good hands. He did the Lunar Chronicles covers. He did a Renegades he just did. He did the Six of Crows and Grisha trilogy. So I was like, oh, he makes awesome covers. And I also love his covers because they're inception-y in the sense that you have the image. And then you read the book and you look at it again and you're like, oh my gosh, he put this really important thing front and center and I didn't even know. I was excited, but oh my God. So I don't have to worry about that. Something I thought of with her, because I kind of got a similar question where someone's like, do you put a lot of pressure on yourself because there's so much attention and there's so much, you know, it's like a big excitement and all that. And I said, I think every debut puts a lot of pressure on themselves. I am the daughter of Nigerian immigrants, so I have been bred. I will always put more pressure on myself than anyone can put on me because that is it. But I also think just in general, I think all... At least the YA authors I've connected with, we all put pressure on ourselves because this is us putting something into the world. This is something that's going to be hopefully positive for teenagers. This is for the people we're writing for, we're either giving them mirrors to see themselves in or windows to see others in or a place to lose themselves in or a place to discover themselves in. And so it's a big, for any debut, especially though for YA authors, I think we all put that pressure on ourselves because we want to do this right for the kid. We don't want to be that one book that really damaged the way a kid saw themselves.
0: Thank you for adding to that. I feel like everything that you say brings so much awareness. Like it just makes people realize a lot of things they may not have realized before. So I just wanted to say that out loud and thank you for it in case <laughs> oh, I don't you. thank you this later. So good. <laughs> I'm going to squeeze in the final two questions. Satchel Buck Jones wrote, As a page-turning plotter, I want to, number one, thank Tomi for a beautifully crafted oh, resource Lord. for aspiring writers. I highly recommend anyone struggling to find a guide that will help cultivate their ideas into a feasible plot to check it out. And number two, as someone who has recently finished her plotting course, I would love to know when it came to the world building aspect of her novel, how much of it did she outline beforehand? How much did she discover along the way? So I feel like we covered that. Yeah. If there's anything you want to add, that's cool too. If not, no worries. We can skip to the next question.
1: So the world building, that's where I, every time. Okay. So I outlined most of the world in a lot of detail before I started writing, but then I got bored with that. So I got to a point where I was like, okay, I did maybe like the first act worth of like world building, just because for me as a writer, I need, like I said, I'm visual. I have a horrible sense of smell too. So I need to think very hard about what you would smell in the desert. I did outline that, but then I was excited. I wanted to start writing the story. And when you're excited to write, you need to write because there's going to be many times when you are not excited to write and you need to write. So I was like, okay, no, I'm excited. Let me jump into it. But before I got to a new location, I would do my detailed world building outline. But that's just because of the way it's something I need. So I think that's another thing with writers. So the more you write, and the more you revise, the more you discover exactly what you need. So for me, by this point in my writing journey, I know I need to see a visual or something of what I am trying to describe so that I can get it clear in my head and then put it on the page. So I don't necessarily need that for the first draft, but for my second draft, that's where I need to get into the details and be like, okay, let's put them in a room and let's make it real. And even when I'm revising, my editor will be like, what can she place her? And I'll be like, oh, you're right. Okay. You find out what you naturally don't do. And then you compensate for that. The world building, both on like a theoretical level, like, oh, what's the history of the world and what's all this? I really got into it because I need to know that to write. But specifically, even by a scene by scene level, like I really outlined that just because I need to do that so I can see it. And then once I can see it, I can figure out how to describe it.
0: Tommy, amazing okay squeezing in the last one Jillian Foley said I'd love to know how Tomi decided to spend some of her time blogging and creating resources for other writers which are great by the way oh thank you Jillian
1: so that was during my first book when I started my blog it was spring of senior year of college and someone said having a blog can help you get published now what I didn't know is that having a blog that's what you need if you're publishing nonfiction. you do not need a blog the published fiction, but I started it because I was like, Oh, anything I can do to help, right? So that was the catalyst for me. But then I started doing it, writing a post about what I'd learned about how to build strong characters. And I found that one, it was really satisfying to just create a blog post because when you're writing a book, like the end point was never in sight. And like I said, my first book was years. So I was like, Oh, I'm in the middle of another revision of who knows how many revisions, but here I just did the 600 world blog post, and it's done. And that felt good. And then I started getting readers and they were like, wow, this is really helpful. Thank you so much. And I was like, wait, I'm actually helping you. And that felt really good. It was my respite from writing because It helped me feel like I was solidifying what I was learning, but also it made me feel really good that if someone read something I did, that I would be potentially saving a couple months of exploration off for them, because that's kind of how I craft everything. And even with my page turning plot course, it's like, here's everything I wish I knew about plot when I seriously wanted to publish a novel. That's the other thing. Sometimes people, there's so many young writers who are like, I want to do this. And I'm like, hey, you're epic. You are epic because you are not lying to yourself about what you want to do, which means you are going to do this and it's going to be great. But you don't have to do it right away. And that's my thing. Like I said, before I got serious about publishing, I never finished a story, but that I still had thousands of pages of written stories. And that's okay because what I was doing there, me just exploring and having fun, that's what I needed to do. I was still building up a toolbox. I just then had to look and when I was like, okay, now I want to do this for real, what tools am I missing? Oh, writing 300 pages single spaced of Naruto fan fiction. You're like, oh, I definitely wasted my time. But I learned how to write fight scenes, and I didn't even know I was learning how to write fight scenes, but I was. And now when I write an action scene, people are like, oh, I get it. And I was like, thank you, nerdy-ass girl who said like 300 pages of Naruto fan fiction that the world see because it's like she was having fun but she was also training and i didn't know that so with the blog it's like everything that i had to find out about story to get published is what i try to put on the blog you see how it started you see why i kept doing it but what i love about it now is like i'm someone when i see the story of angie thomas i go on to google die i need to know everything i can know because that inspires me i can positively brand it as ravenclaw it's really just stalkerish but it's like oh Let's say it's Ravenclaw. When I read *An Ember in the Ashes* and was blown away, I was like, "Okay, let me learn everything about this." And it's good because when you arm yourself with knowledge, everything feels possible. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, okay." I was like, *An Ember in the Ashes* is the most magical thing I've ever read. And then I see in interviews that like it took five years, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, she revised. We, I can revise everything that's." when you arm yourself with information is suddenly, oh, I can do that, which is why I like to share the good, the bad and the ugly, because i will be like, oh, yeah, oh, my God, I haven't slept in two months. And I'm not saying don't sleep for two months. But like, oh, what I take away from that is, oh, she just worked really, really hard. Her uncle isn't a literary agent. And even sometimes people will be like, oh, but you studied English at Harvard. Is that And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I've, I get emails from people like, who live in different countries, they're like, do I need to go to Harvard? Do I need to study English? And I'm like, no, you do not. And I'm like, I learned more about writing after I graduated, because I wasn't studying creative writing. I was reading like The Great Gatsby. That, That doesn't inform the way I write now. So I try and say, hey, this is what I learned, and I learned this by reading. I learned this by Googling. They're awesome resources, but if you don't have access to them, it's okay, because if you can read, and you can write, those are the most important tools. Children of Blood and Bone happened because I started reading fantasy again. It's not because I went to Harvard. It's not because I studied English. It's not even because I went to Brazil, because on one hand, it's like, oh yeah, but that's where you saw the picture. Okay, but Lemonade came out that summer, and that's when everyone was talking about Orisha. You know, so it's not even to say place I would have discovered it. It happened because I had done trial and error with my first book and I learned everything I need to learn to write a story. Then the right moment of inspiration hit and I had the tools to actually take it. Had I had this idea two years ago, oh my God, it would have been a mess. It would have been such a mess. I don't even want to think about that. That is what the blog is. That's my long-winded way of saying I like that the blog exists because, yes, you can Google me now and you'll find all these things that make it seem like, oh, she just came out of the womb like this. Mm-hmm. But you can go to my very first blog post and see like, hey, guys, I'm learning with you. You can go to my why I write post. That's I don't even know how many years old that one is. Um, that's why people are like, oh, you had a plan. And I was like, I had a mission And I had goals. And now you can see that I worked on that mission and that like the goals came true. You can see it's possible. That's the biggest importance the blog is for me now. And that's why I keep doing it, even though time is so limited, is because I want everyone to know, oh, that dream you have, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Like, look at me. Sure, you can see this fancy article now, but go back two years. I was just like
0: you. I was in my room. I was writing. Nobody was reading. Tommy, I <laughs> love that. I'm gonna insert one little statement from a listener. It's not a question because we already covered it. She, uh, her name okay. is Renee Elaine Robertson. She says she doesn't have a specific question, but I would really love to hear about Tommy's publishing story, which we covered. But she also says she is so so excited for your books. I Thought I'd wrap it up with that. <laughs> they are very very pumped. And Tommy, <laughs> you were so. Freaking awesome! Please let listeners know where they can find you on social media, where they can say hi. Yeah,
1: all right. For social media, I'm on Twitter. I feel like a mom. Like (laughs) I'm on Facebook now. Oh no, you can. (laughs) I'm pretty active on Twitter, so I'm at. T-O-M-I underscore Emmy, So just my full name, but with an underscore in the middle. If you're a writer, I just talked a lot about my blog. If you just go to TomiAdiemi.com, actually it's changed a little bit. So if you go to TomiAdiemi.com, you'll see all the tabs and you're going to see one called for writers. And that's where all my writing resources are there. And then my own writing community, I have a free video training. I still do blog posts. I try and do a monthly, but like I said, I haven't slept for two months. <laughs> so like I do what I can. But yeah, so you'll see stuff about the book if you want to find out more. But then there's the tab for writers and it's basically a whole separate site just for writing knowledge and blog posts and everything like that. Because like I said, my whole goal with it is saying, hey, everything is possible. Your dreams are possible. You just be prepared to work your butt
0: <laughs> off.
1: But they are possible. <laughs> so.
0: You are amazing. I feel horrendous that I kept you on for so long. Okay. I'm going to let you go and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. See you here. Thank you for everything. Thank you so much. And that wraps up our episode with the one and only Tomi at AME. Tomi, you already know I love you and I'm so appreciative of our friendship. Thank you for giving me six pack abs and the urgency to pee my pants from laughing so hard during our hangouts. You are so thoughtful and kind and generous of a human being as you are brilliant and talented as a storyteller. And I am so excited our listeners finally got to listen in on your brilliance. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please give lots of love to Tomi and show your support by grabbing yourselves a copy of Children of Blood and Bone releasing on March 6th. Say hi to her on Twitter at Tomi underscore N-A-M-E. And head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com/slash podcast slash Tomi Dash at As a reminder, be sure to catch Tomi's Instagram takeover on Instagram.com slash 88 Cups of Tea. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time, and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com groups 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.